Hey everybody, I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Dan Bova, John Small, how are you, man? I'm good, man. I'm I'm good, and I haven't fallen for any Ponzi schemes this week, at least. So um... that makes one of us. <laughs> yeah, uh, no Ponzi schemes this week. But I was fascinated to sort of stumble upon this story that I, you know, I, I want everybody to kind of get in their time travel machines mm. uh, this week. We're going to go back to 1890. If you lived in 1890. Everybody in the world knew this story, um, but of course, time happens and people forget these incredible tabloid stories that you know you think are going to last forever. But man, this story totally missed my radar. Uh, had never heard this story until I stumbled across it, and then uh, we were lucky enough to find a writer by the name of Bill Schaefer who wrote a whole book on the story we're about to talk about. But let me set it up by saying this, Dan. We all know Alexander Hamilton, right? I mean like one of the most famous founding fathers of our country. Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> My name is Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And now that song is stuck in everyone's head for the rest of the day. So you're welcome. Thank you, Lynn Emanuel. What is Lynn Emanuel? Miranda. So he, you know, Alexander Hamilton, very much in vogue. Uh, he also happens to have his beautiful face happens to be on the $10 bill if anybody still uses cash. But what people don't know is he had a great grandson who, for all the good that Alexander Hamilton did in the world, his great grandson kind of has the opposite legacy. Um, and even though he didn't actually do anything that bad, he was involved in one of the biggest scandals of the late 19th century in New York sort of tabloid history. Yeah, this is this is a wild one, and it 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 paints a picture of the world. I mean, I think uh, when a lot of us maybe you look back on history because it already happened, and then it's a finite thing. You feel like, man, the the world we live in now is just crazy. It is just bonkers. It's off the charts. Everything's awful, and I'm not going to dispute any of those. Uh, yeah, <laughs> any of those labels, but. You know, and then you look back at history and you, you think of like all of these these great people rising up and doing all this great stuff. Right. But there's this people have been shitty forever, John. I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. No. And there have been con artists and really bad players forever. And this story is particularly dark and you'll and you'll see why it is a con that kind of exposes a side of really New York and, and I guess the the greater country. It was a really weird period in our history where there was this like big discrepancy between the rich and the poor. This is the Gilded Age. And there was like not a lot of government regulation at this time of of certain very uh, nefarious stuff that was going on. So it kind of exposes a lot of what was going on in America at the sort of turn of the 19th century. Plus, it's a good damn dirty money story. <laughs> yes. I'll just say this before we get to it. Speaking of the Gilded Age, I don't know if you've seen that TV show. I can't get three minutes into it without falling deeply asleep. So for anyone who has any sleeping problems out there, I recommend it is, you. That is the biggest disappointment, that show, because <laughs> that show 
there is no show that would be that would, I would be more inclined to watch yeah. than Gilded Age. I love that this period of history. I love history. I love historical fiction, and it's the, made by the same guy who did the Downton Abbey. Yeah, you know, it had all the bonafides. It's a terrible show. It's just a terrible <laughs> show. I can't believe they renewed it, and it has a huge budget. It's oh, uh, it's great. That that's you know of all the crimes we've discussed on this show, that is perhaps <laughs> the biggest. Um, but anyway, yes, we, we should gotta stop. get Julian Fellows on, or is that his name? We got to bring in the creator of that show. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> he really perpetrated a con on us, thinking that that show would be a good show. Anyway, I guess he's not going to be coming on the show anytime soon. So we've got Bill Schaefer on the other line. Bill is the author of a really cool new book called The Scandalous Hamiltons, A Gilded Age Grifter, A Founding Father's Disgraced Descendant, and A Trial at the Dawn of Tabloid Journalism. Bill, welcome to the Dirty Money Podcast. Sure. So Bill, set this up for us. Who exactly was Robert Ray Hamilton? Like what was his life? What was his background? He was, for all intents and purposes, a real upstanding citizen. Robert Ray Hamilton, he went through his life being uh, called Ray by his friends and family. Ray Hamilton was a great-grandson of Alexander Hamilton. Ray's father was a a Civil War general, a a West Point grad named Schuyler Hamilton. His grandfather was John Church Hamilton, who was a son of Alexander. So uh, Ray Hamilton was a a great-grandson of Alexander. He was uh, born and raised in Manhattan. Like most Hamiltons, he went to Columbia University and Columbia Law School. Uh, he was a New York state assemblyman. He was a practicing attorney. He was a real estate developer. The, uh, the Hamilton family had quite a bit of real estate holdings in New York at that time. When, when Ray met his, uh, demise, he had, uh, deeds for 32 different properties in his name. He bought, he bought uh, property in Graves and Brooklyn after the Brooklyn Bridge opened because he knew that would be ripe for development. Uh, so there were there was a lot of uh, real estate that passed between various uh, hands of the Hamiltons. So for all intents and purposes, he was a upstanding citizen. He was an impressive guy, a wealthy uh, real estate uh, holder and and a, a politician. So, you know, nothing to be ashamed of uh, in the early stages of his uh, career. Yeah, not not in the least. And he actually spent more of his time in Albany than he did in in the city uh, when he was a state assemblyman. He would come home on weekends or when um, uh, the assembly wasn't in session. And uh, on one of his weekends in the city, he did what many gentlemen uh, of his uh, class did. Uh, he would go to, uh, after a, a night out of dinner with uh, and drinks with friends at a, a private club or a nice New York restaurant, he would end the evening at a body house, uh, i.e. Uh, a house of ill repute. Mm. Prostitution was pretty um, commonplace and, and open in New York at that time. So there was it, it was illegal, but it was sort of like a gray area? Yeah, and there were all kind of classes of sex workers. There were uh, women who kind of worked the docks for uh, very uh, small amounts of money. There were madams who had 
and quite elaborate operations. They had lovely townhouses. Uh, uh, they would have people there playing the piano and entertaining their guests. And uh, they had tickets to the opera. They were well-read and could converse with these guys. So, um, and those are the kind of places that uh, Ray would frequent, you know, more than the sort of things on the lower so, scale. Well, let me ask a quick question. So that's what it was like on the inside. Was it still something that... I mean, would you just walk in the front door unembarrassed or people sneaking in the back? Like, was it acceptable? Yeah, acceptable. Front door, unembarrassed, for sure. Mm. So who was Evangeline or Eva Steele? Um, well, the woman that became his wife was a woman named, uh, she was born Eva, uh, Evangeline Steele. And... Unlike Ray, who grew up basically in privilege, uh, she grew up quite the opposite. She was uh, she grew up in the sort of coal mining country of Pennsylvania and, and uh, New York State. Her father was an alcoholic. He was an itinerant woodcutter. He would be part of a gang of guys that would basically clear uh, forest for railroad tracks to be laid. And she was the youngest of six children. And the consensus in her village growing up was that she, quote, wasn't going to be bright. However, uh, she she ended up being quite a um, sort of a savvy, if that's the right word, uh, manipulator. And she made her way to New York. There were very few opportunities for women at that time. And women with virtually no education had even fewer. And so sex work was not an uncommon trade for a, a woman like Eva to fall in. And she and she was in a quote unquote more high end brothel. She was, yeah, she was uh, very beguiling. You know, men were quite attracted to her. Uh, she had a way about herself, a presence that was uh, could be very endearing and very enchanting. And uh, Ray and Eva met in one of these uh, body houses in about 1885. And they began a relationship. They uh, basically only saw each other on weekends when Ray was in town, but uh, he took care of her. He would help pay her rent. He would buy her clothes. She was a bit of a fashionista. She was always well-dressed, and Ray supported that. She was into jewelry, having her hair done properly. And the relationship went along in a in a sort of manner of convenience for both of them for almost four years. Now, he wasn't married at this time. He was a single man? He was not married. In fact, when they ended up getting married, he was 36 years old, which would, the average age for a man getting married at that time was about 28. So he would have been considered kind of past the typical marrying age. And Eva was 29, and the average marrying age for a woman was about 22. So they were both sort of more advanced than uh, in age than uh, couples typically being married at that time. So it seems like at this point, they have a good arrangement, right? They're like, he's paying her, like you said, he's paying her expenses. He's, But she takes it to a, to a different level. And this is where <laughs> the sort of dirty money element comes in. Um, what to tell us a little bit about suddenly she is pregnant, um, but that is not necessarily true. So tell us a little bit about what she does and why did she do this? Why did she take it to this level? 
And so at a, at a certain point, Eva really desired to become Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton. Ray was not really interested, uh, to be quite honest, in in not only getting married to her, but getting married kind of at all. He was quite comfortable as a bachelor kind of man about town. Mm. And so Eva decided that, uh, uh, or came to the conclusion that if she were pregnant with his child, him being a morally upright man, he would marry her. Mm. Uh, so in the spring of 1889, she announced to him that she was pregnant uh, with his child. And he it still didn't get him really to <laughs> sort of get off the dime, so to speak. Um, <laughs> but it, as it turns out, she she never was pregnant. She ended up buying a baby at what were um, known at the time as baby farms. They were essentially illegal orphanages. And what would happen, and it was actually the saddest part of the, the research that went in, into the book. And so if a woman found herself giving birth to a child, a child that she either uh, didn't want to keep or couldn't keep or couldn't really tell anybody about for whatever reasons, you could give that baby to a midwife. No questions asked. Obviously, you, you could surrender that child for, you could surrender that child for adoption. However, there's a certain amount of paperwork and registration and kind of all, and names being said uh, in all of the paperwork for that. Whereas these midwives, would just take your babies, no question asked. What they would then do, if that baby was kind of, you know, rosy-hued, pink-cheeked, a healthy-looking young infant, they would then sell those babies. You could buy one, again, no questions asked, for $10. Um, the sad part about is that babies that... <clears throat> Uh, weren't deemed uh, saleable were most often victims of infanticide. Uh, they were um, they were left in alleys. They some smothered, some drowned. Um, it was it was a pretty cruel um, um, thing that happened. But it wasn't uncommon, not only in New York, but in in cities kind of everywhere there were a number of baby farms um in manhattan brooklyn was a real hotbed for them there was about 25 or 30 in brooklyn at that time um and so if you that's that's how you could acquire a baby and so in the fall of 1889 sorry 1888 um ray was in uh, albany quite often Eva obviously was never appearing to be carrying a child. And so for the last few months of her uh, pregnancy, she announced that she was going to Elmira, New York, where her mother lived for her lying in period. It was pretty common for women uh, to have bed rest for the last couple of months of their pregnancy. If you had money, you could go to a hospital to do that. Uh, but if you were a modest circumstances or poor, you would often go to either your mother or a sister, an aunt, a relative. 
And so she said, I'm going to Elmira. When I come back at the end of the year, um, I will come with your child. And Ray said, okay, basically, it's still no, <laughs> no hints of marriage. Um, so uh, she, uh, she bought a baby at a baby farm in Elmira. Uh, she was bringing it back to New York. Eva had no idea how to care for a baby. She couldn't lactate because she had never been pregnant. Mm -hmm. And on the way from Elmira back to New York, that baby died. Uh, So when she got to New York, it basically died of of starvation. She couldn't properly feed it. (sighs) When she got to New York, she bought a second baby because she had told Ray, you know, this, I'm coming with this baby. So she buys a second baby in New York, and Ray is introduced to that child as his daughter, a daughter named Beatrice Ray Hamilton. They weren't living together. He was introduced to the daughter. Uh, He went back to his townhouse on 14th Street, and that second baby died. Oh, my God. uh, After Ray had left. So Ray sends a kind of friend, or uh, sorry, Eva sends a friend of the family out to buy a replacement baby and comes back with baby number three. And Eva goes, you idiot. This baby doesn't look anything like baby number two. Even Ray will be on to this. So Eva herself returns that baby and buys a fourth baby that looks as close to baby number two as she can find. And that baby ends up uh, being their daughter. So at this point, we're now right around New Year's of uh, 1889. She says, you know, we really should get married. And Ray agrees. He sees the baby and that was that. that. And that was it. So did he agree because he was worried about being blackmailed or did he agree because he actually just fell in love with the baby? What's your take on i i don't think he fell in love with the baby i don't think he had fear of being blackmailed but he was a sort of prominent citizen uh he uh was still a politician and i just don't think he wanted the kind of any negative news that might come out about Mm -hmm. it so they told uh neither of their families they took the ferry across the river to patterson new jersey and they were married in a uh, in Patterson, the witnesses were the um, the pastor's um, wife and mother-in-law, and Ray's family didn't find out about it until six months after uh, they got married in January of 1889, and it wasn't until that summer when Ray told his father that he was married and had a child. Hmm. That is heavy. Do you have a business problem? Well, I know people who have the answer. Hi, I'm Jason Pfeiffer, Editor-in-Chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and host of the entrepreneur podcast, Problem Solvers. Each week on Problem Solvers, I talk to an entrepreneur about how they solved a problem in their business, like fixing their funding or marketing or product or whatever, or I talk to an expert about how to solve the most common vexing problems that you are probably facing, from leadership to lack of confidence. Our conversations are straight to the point because you don't have time for endless blah, blah, blah and tell me how you got started. No, you're busy. You have work to do. And Problem Solvers is here to help you solve 
problems. Find Problem Solvers wherever you get your podcasts. When he told them, did they know the circumstances of how they met and all that? Or No, actually, after they got married, Ray always liked the West. He was a big hunter and fisherman, and he wanted to move to San Diego. The railroads had just started coming to San Diego. It was really being developed. There was a lot of coastline property for sale at cheap prices. Eva suspected that he wanted to move out there to say, I met this woman in San Diego. We had a child and then they would come back to New York. So it would Mm. be, she thought it was kind of a cover story. Yeah. Regardless of which version is true. She hated it uh, on the West coast. And in the summer of 1889, they decided to return to New York and uh, before sort of setting up house in Manhattan, they were going to uh, stay, spend the month of August in Atlantic city, which they did. And in Atlantic city, there were the big hotels along the beach and the boardwalk and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. There were also lots of smaller, much more private inns and cottages on the side streets they took rooms there. They had a ba- they had hired a baby nurse, a sort of hard drinking Irish woman named Marianne Donnelly. And basically, after spending about eight months together, uh, Ray had had it. He could, you know, uh, this was just too much. And right as they're the night before they're leaving to return to New York, Ray says, basically, I want a divorce. I'm going to give you uh, $5,000 a year and I will provide for Beatrice in whatever way she needs. And Eva basically says, hell no. She's been trying to become Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton for about five years now. She's just not going to give it all up for $5,000. So there is a big argument. Uh, Eva was a heavy drinker. On the morning of their departure, this argument's going on. Eva sends the nurse, Marianne Donnelly, out to buy a bottle of whiskey uh, Marianne Donnelly drinks about half of it before she even gets back to the cottage. <laughs> Eva drinks the other half, essentially, and they end up in a giant argument because uh, uh, Marianne Donnelly, she had long suspected that this might not really be their baby or that at least Ray wasn't the father, and she threatened to tell Eva. Eva did the uh, the only thing she could think to do in that drunken moment. She found a hunting knife in Ray's uh, uh, belongings, pulled it out, and stabbed the nurse. Uh, yeah. This is at about lunchtime. Was Ray there um, at the time? Ray is there. He's trying to come between the two of them. His clothes end up getting ripped and torn and all of that stuff. The baby's bathtub is hurled by Eva at Marianne Donnelly's head and goes clunking across the floor. Everybody downstairs in the dining room is wondering what the hell is going on upstairs. Yeah. And um, um, she is stabbed. Uh, she doesn't die, but the cops are brought over. This happens at lunchtime on a Monday. By, by Monday night, reporters from new york philadelphia baltimore essentially who can ever get on a train to get there have descended on atlantic city and the newspaper headlines the next morning are that a hamilton has been involved in a stabbing in atlantic city whoa 
it becomes a tabloid journalism fest. Uh, within a week, it's determined what uh, Eva's background was. Uh, a famous New York City detective named Tommy Burns discovers that not only was this baby not his, Eva had been in a common law marriage with a drunkard and ne'er-do-well for uh, several years. And the whole thing just becomes front page news everywhere across the country. It's just made for the tabloids. Wow. A hundred percent. What what would be like the modern equivalent? Like, uh, Think of any celebrity scandal that um, I, I can't think of one offhand. Maybe Johnny Depp and Amber Heard or something. I, I, I don't oh, know. Okay. If Amber that... had stabbed the baby nurse, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so oh because the, uh, and I write in the book, you know, the, the way we think of the Kennedy name today, right? 60 years after or so after JFK's assassination, when we hear the name Kennedy in the news, it kind of perks people's ears up, right? Yeah. In the late 1800s, the Hamilton name was very much thought of in that same way. Hamiltons were upstanding citizens. They did good. They were successful people, philanthropists. And for a Hamilton to get involved in something so tawdry was uh people people couldn't get enough of it um yeah. you know at the time newspapers were published in basically eight page editions there might be there was no photographs or anything in papers yet there might be 20 small stories on a front page for a for a story to command a full column on page one hmm. it had to be big news ray and eva were full columns on page one for weeks after it, even wow. stories that continued into the interior pages, which was kind of unheard of, very, very rare. Huh. And people, you know, it was, it was, you know, here's the, here's this guy who's so successful, uh, comes from such a good family and he's caught up with this woman of, of, uh, her reputation was just shredded in the newspapers but there was this underlying kind of question was how could such a seemingly smart man be so stupid, you know? And, uh, um, it was, uh, it just, it, people couldn't get enough of it. So there is a, a, um, a, uh, a trial in May's landing, uh, which was the County seat for Atlanta County. The sheriff's wife as just kind of an aside took a liking to Eva and allowed them allowed her to stay in the sheriff's house which was next door to the jail the sheriff was a guy named smith johnson and i don't know if you've ever seen the show boardwalk empire oh yeah but in the show nucky thompson mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. his brother so his real name was nucky johnson he was the son of the sheriff oh and wow so, so nucky johnson and his younger brother were like three and four year old boys when Eva was living in the third floor of their house, waiting to, to be sent to the Trenton state prison. Oh, wow. So there was that criminal trial first. And then what even became bigger news was the civil action that followed that uh, about a year later or so there was a, um, a pay for play pardon scheme going on in the New Jersey state pr prison. Eva figured that out. And 
um, paid a thousand dollars and had herself pardoned after a, uh, and was released a year after her sentence. She was sentenced to three and a half years or something. And she got herself out of jail. And after all of this big hullabaloo, Ray wanted to get out of New York, wanted to get out of the newspapers. And so he went to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And with the intention of building a lodge, the railroads were coming out there now. And it was kind of a thing for, I'll just say, generally Wall Street bros to, you know, go out on a big hunting and fishing trip and all of that stuff. And there were no great places to stay. And so Ray was going to build one of the uh, kind of a grand lodge. Um, And he met up with a guy out there named John Sargent, who was also an Easterner who had fallen into kind of rough times. He ended up being just absolutely nuts, uh, John Sargent. And they ended up going partnerships in this uh, 50-50 partners in this lodge. Ray is only in Jackson Hole for several months. He had really been itching to go out hunting on his own. John Sargent said, you don't really know the land that well yet. One of us should go with you, blah, blah, blah. Ray insisted on going on his own, and I'll just leave it as he met uh, very unfortunate circumstances and never returned to New York. I'll I'll leave it at that. Okay, got to buy the book to find out what happened. (laughs) So due, due to these unfortunate circumstances, Eva was essentially now a widow. And, uh, um, as a widow, she had what was called dower rights, regardless of what might be, uh, spelled out in a, in a, a man's will, a widow was entitled to half of their estate right off the bat. Ray had a sizable estate. And so Eva, <laughs> so the will was probated And uh, no mention of her in the probate. And she jumped in to say, wait, 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 wait just a second here. I have a marriage certificate. I'm entitled to half of this. They hadn't divorced, right? They had never gotten around to doing the divorce. They had never gotten divorced. Um, Actually, right at the end of that argument, after Ray had offered her um, $5,000 a year, to uh uh which was a pretty good chunk of money she said you know what i'll do it for six but that was right before the stabbing (laughs) took place so then the deal was off altogether yeah um and so eva's contest of the will was was front page news times 10 she was coming into the courtroom every morning. Reporters were reporting breathlessly on what she was wearing. You know, if it seemed like she should be uh, sad and tearful, she would turn on the tears. If it was time to be defiant or happy-go-lucky, it was it was like a play to her. It was. Wow. Um, she loved the attention. She loved them writing about her every day. She couldn't get enough of it, um, and so. Um, the court ruled against her. Basically, uh, Ray's attorney, which was a gentleman named Elihu Root, who actually became, uh, he was a law partner of Chester A. Arthur. 
He became uh, McKinley's Secretary of War and then Roosevelt's Secretary of War and then Secretary of State. Uh, he was he ended up being one of these kind of Washington wise men, you know, as right. they are referred yeah. to. Um, he was kind of the prototype for that. But he was uh, the Hamilton's family attorney. And he basically just destroyed Eva, destroyed her. This whole common law marriage came up. Uh, uh, this guy was Josh. His name was Josh Mann. And, you know, not only was he in the alcohol, an alcoholic and probably not very bright to begin with, he had been kicked in the head by a horse and was just mentally not all there. And in fact, uh, they brought in an expert witness to um, uh, talk about Josh's uh, condition. And it was a guy named Dr. Carlos McDonald. And so who was the chief of um, alien studies at uh, Bellevue Hospital. Alienism was that the term at that time for psychology, right? Right, right. the alienist. And so um, I'm researching this book and I'm thinking, okay, Dr. Carlos McDonald, let me just sort of Google him for a second and see who he is. Turns out he was the co-inventor with Thomas Edison of the electric chair. So all of these characters yeah. sort of <laughs> oh keep showing up in this story. But during this whole time, while the will is being uh, contested, Ray had left $10,000 to the city of New York to build a horse fountain in his name. His father was so uh, aggrieved by Ray's behavior and how this all played out in the news that he got an article planted in the New York Times that was headlined, Let Him Be Forgotten. And he basically uh, wow. he said in there that we don't want the money. The city can do whatever they want with it. We, have, we don't want a dime of it back. Whatever you do, though, don't build this fountain in Ray's name. Uh, we we don't want the Hamilton name associated with anything about him, which was a tough one. It was a very prideful family, obviously, and yeah. uh, and Ray was just um, uh, thrown under the bus uh, in in a big way. So, but they were that aggrieved with him just because he married a woman of ill repute, right? I mean. That's the only thing you could say he did, right? All this other stuff, he had no idea that it was not really his kid. Right. right. I think it was just from the general point of view that the Hamilton name mm -hmm. had by now headlined about five or 600 newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. Right. right. And, and all of those way. articles, you know, would say Ray Hamilton, the fallen son of, you know, yeah. one of the great statesmen of this country, you know, right, right. that kind of thing. And they were just, uh, they just didn't want his name attached to anything. So what happens to, to Eva? She, she ends up not getting that money, but she also becomes a celebrity in her own right, right? Yeah. So finally, after uh, Elihu Root just, goes after her and after her and after her on the witness stand. She basically caves and tells the whole story that it wasn't Ray's child. She tells everything. And so the whole thing is going to go away. She's not going to get a penny. And all of a sudden, just as it's about to be finalized, she comes back into court with a piece of paper that allegedly Ray wrote saying, 
I'm going to give you or I owe you Eva $8,000 or something. It was clearly a forgery, but the Hamilton family felt at that time that she's just going to keep coming back to the well until she gets something. So they gave her, they made her an offer. We'll give you $10,000 and you just go away. You never mention the name Hamilton again. You never speak of any of this ever. And she agreed to it. Um, she was, um, uh, by now, a, a, a full-fledged alcoholic. Um, she she remarried um, uh, this kind of British guy who was a uh, a um, uh, alleged stage actor. He was really a bit of a grifter himself. Uh, she had a play written that told her life story that she was told everyone she was going to take to Broadway. Uh, it tried out in um, Boonton, New Jersey, uh, was its first run. And six nights later, it closed. Um, so things were sort of spiraling down for her. And uh, she ended up going to Europe for an extended period and came back to basically blowing all the money, came back to New York, back into the sex trade, and ended up... Um, um, dying as a as a uh, homeless alcoholic in St. Vincent's Hospital at age 43, and she was buried uh, in a potter's field in Queens. So oh, sad story, but then again, not a good person. Um, right. <laughs> one one bit of maybe light in the end of this very dark story is that <laughs> it seems like this issue of the baby farms it becomes. Uh, more kind of commonly understood among the public. And this uh, reporter by the name of Nellie Bly, many people may have heard of Nellie Bly, very famous reporter at the time, who used to expose a lot of things, a lot of the underbelly of New York at the time, does an expose on baby farms, right? Yeah, she did. She actually, when Eva was in jail in the Trenton Strait Prison, Nellie talked herself in to a jail, talk to the matron, the, the warden of the women's wing of the state prison, talked her into letting her come in and do an interview with Eva. And she writes as a kind of intro to her article, everybody's heard Robert Ray Hamilton's side of the story. For the first time, you will hear his wife, Eva's. And she basically published Eva's uh, version of the account verbatim Eva was Eva was a storyteller. I write in the book that for her, facts were fungible, right? Whatever advanced her cause was wrapped up in a story. She said that the baby uh, for a while was, um, uh, she tried to say, and she told Nellie Bly, that the baby was actually a friend of Ray's who had gotten a woman in trouble on a road trip and that the friend couldn't, um, um, kind of come public with it. So she agreed uh, as a favor to Ray and his friend to carry, or, you know, to mother this baby. She told her a number of things and Nellie figured out the whole baby farm part of it as well. And that's when, and she wrote her uh, expose about baby farms on the heels of learning about Eva and uh, the Hamilton story. Yeah. 
So she exposed she was, abs- <clears throat> she was absolutely involved in it. And so hopefully that led to some reforms in adoption. I don't know, maybe not immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I hope hopefully it did. I mean, obviously it's it it surprised me how not nonchalant people were about it, but but how it was just sort of a shrug of the shoulders. This this is a a fact of life during the uh, the late eighteen hundreds. So uh, it was it was nuts. Yeah, this is like that was a really weird period. That was like Gilded Age meets dark uh, industrial revolution kind of right stuff. Right. That was right well, you before know, the progressive where, era. Yeah. Where most of the uh story played out, it played out in all of the newspapers, but particularly the New York World, which was Joseph Pulitzer's uh newspaper. And you know, his whole point of that paper was uh to make it for the working man, mm-hmm. right? And those stories of basically rich people getting their comeuppance, mm-hmm. those were those were his stock and trade. And this story had physical violence, sexual stuff, uh, the rich versus the poor, a famous name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it had sort of everything. And Nellie Bly actually was a reporter for the New York World. That was her that was her platform. Paper. Yeah. Wow. So, well, some things never change, I guess. I think. Yeah. Here we are a hundred years later, also telling this story. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Um, Wow. That, what a story. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, and how, how did you, how did you, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a history buff, but I've never heard this. Like, how did you, how did you happen upon this? How'd you uncover this? Yeah. I was living on the Upper West Side and, uh, uh, in my neighborhood, I, I, in addition to writing, I do historical architectural research and I was walking, it was an incredibly cold January night and I was walking past 76th street and Riverside, uh, drive. And I see this fountain and it says, wow. I, I said to myself, this is a, this looks incredible. This looks like something you would see at Grand Central. So I ran over and read the Parks Department plaque next to it quickly because I was freezing. Robert Ray Hamilton, great-grandson of Alexander Hamilton, caught up in a scandal, uh, and the fountain was designed by Warren and Wetmore. And they are the same architects who designed Grand Central Terminal. So I'm walking home thinking, how the heck did Warren and Wetmore come to do this fountain in this sort of obscure sort of end of the street in Riverside Park. And so I started just out of my own curiosity uh, doing online searches and and the stories of this scandal came up in short form, most of them not consistent with each other. And as I would come to learn, a lot of them not very true at all. And uh, I thought, wow, there, there must be a book about this. And when I couldn't find one, You're like, I said, okay, I, I'm I'm going to write it. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's how it came about. <laughs> that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. So, and the 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 last thing um, we're probably uh, going to run out of time here, but uh, and a lot of people ask me whatever happened to Beatrice, the baby that was oh, yeah, caught up in all of this. So. Um, Beatrice ended up kind of getting bounced from guardian to guardian. Ray had left her an annuity that paid her a hundred 
dollars a month for the for the entirety of her life. So the the annuity was tied to a property that he co-owned with an aunt of his um, in Manhattan, and the aunt went to court to say, you know, this annuity, this property is underperforming. This annuity really needs to be tied to the entirety of the state, not just this one property. The court agreed with her, and then his brother, his younger brother, who was managing the overall estate, then went to court and say to say, that's not right. In fact, this girl is not even a Hamilton. She really doesn't have a right to this annuity that's, at all. She's that's not pretty part cruel. of the family. That's pretty cruel. It was pretty cold. Yeah. And and the court actually ended up agreeing with uh. him. And so after receiving this annuity for the first eight or nine years of her life, um, uh, it was, it was cut out. She, uh, she changed. I was on the hunt for her for a long, long time. And I finally kind of found something that led me to, um, somebody who was related to her. And I reached out to them to say, would anybody in the family care to talk about her? Could I interview them? Are there any sort of documents or anything about this early part of her life that might still be in the family's possession? They came back to say that um, uh, she uh, lived a full life, uh, moved to the other side of the country, um, had children and grandchildren of her own, and by all accounts lived a full and, quote, normal life. But she had been sort of so traumatized by her beginning years that she never spoke about it, and uh, nobody from the family would care to do it. And so out of respect for her privacy, she lived such a public life in her early years, I didn't, uh, I, I, I let it all go. Uh, but she changed her name uh, legally when she was roughly about 15 or 16 years old uh, and went on to basically have nothing to do with with those early years at all so did any of the hamilton family the existing hamilton family reach out to you or talk to you about this book i mean there must be hamiltons around right there are um and i had a um a brief email exchange with one of them um i can't say they were enormous fans <laughs> yeah, of the of this project uh, of the book. <laughs> uh but the fact is uh, Ray's uh, personal papers are in the New York Historical Society. I was able to access about a thousand pages of court documents from both the criminal and civil actions. Um, again, about five to six hundred published newspaper articles. I never inserted myself into the story or my opinions or anything. Uh, it was strictly a, a factual recounting of this. Well, I guess I guess to ask your opinion of her, uh, do you think she went into this, uh, you know, after all this research that you've done, do you think that she went into us just really wanting to be uh, his wife, Ray's wife, and would have been happy if that's how it all played out? Or do you think she always would have uh, been angling for for something more? I think she I think she probably would have been happy if that's quite the right word but 
uh, or she would have been content being his wife. It's funny. I, I, I've talked about this book, you know, lots of times since it's, it's launched and particularly among women, there's a certain amount of empathy uh, towards Eva for all of the rotten things that she did. She grew up in a very, uh, the toughest of circumstances. And she really, she spent her life trying to do what she need, what she felt she needed to do to get by, to advance her station in life. We can make whatever judgments about it we want to from a sort of moral or ethical point of view, but she wasn't alone in that, in that kind of approach to life. Again, women who, who grew up like uh, Eva did, they had virtually no opportunities in life. And instead of just sitting in this small village, marrying somebody like her father and living a hard scrabble life forever, she wanted to get out of it. She wanted to do something that would alter her life for the better. She chose incredibly bad ways to go about it. Right. Yeah. But that was her motivation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that once, I think if Ray would have offered her, offered to marry her earlier on without having to kind of force this baby on him, she would have accepted it. Uh, but he, he just, it wasn't in his makeup to to want to do that so yeah it's a bit of a play she felt that she needed to sort of force yeah. his hand he he so. certainly wasn't a, a wonderful guy either yeah. it doesn't seem like yeah he he uh he made some bad choices well his great-grandfather was a pretty good guy seems like so we'll just <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that got the broadway play um yeah <laughs> well maybe there'll be anyway uh the book is called the Scandalous Hamiltons, a Gilded Age grifter, a founding father's disgraced descendant, and a trial at the dawn of tabloid journalism. Bill Schaefer, thank you so much for joining the Dirty Money Podcast and retelling this tale. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you guys. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.